right, friends, we're going to jump in. Uh, tonight we're looking at, we're picking back up in our John series, um, and we're looking at John 4 tonight. And if you were here two weeks ago, we were talking about this idea that no one is so good enough that they're, they're beyond the need for God's grace, and that no one is so bad enough that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. And two weeks ago, we looked at Nicodemus and kind of looked at someone who thought maybe he was beyond the need for God's grace. And tonight we're going to look at uh, Jesus' second conversation in the Gospel of John with a woman who perhaps thinks, probably thinks she's beyond the reach of God's grace. Another way to say this is there are kind of two ways to, to, to do the Christian life, both, both wrong in their own way. One is we, a lot of us think of ourselves kind of like this, like, of course Jesus loves me. I'm doing all the right things. I'm pretty awesome. I don't do those things. Of course Jesus loves me. And we haven't yet seen our need, our need for God's forgiveness. We haven't quite come to grasp with our own sins. And seeing the need for his grace and how big his grace is. But some of us come and we have a kind of a different mindset. Our mindset, and this is more where I live a lot of the time, is how could Jesus love someone like me? That I, I'm kind of so broken, that I'm so messed up, uh, I'm so doing the wrong things, or I'm so not doing the right things. How could Jesus love someone like me? And if you're in that place, I'm glad you came tonight, because this is where Jesus meets us in John 4. I'm going to read it for us. John 4, starting in verse 5, it's in your handout. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of uh, ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is like noon, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? They were political and cultural and racial enemies. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for gathering us. Uh, I know some of us come tired, some of us come weary, some of us come depressed, some of us come anxious. Some of us are, feel like we're in a pretty good place. We're glad to be here. We're, we're excited to be with friends. 
Lord, however it is that we come, whether we come with uh, weeping or whether we come with deep joy and laughter, would you meet us in this place? You are a God who weeps with those who weep, and you are a God who rejoices with those who rejoice. You meet us where we are. And I thank you that you know us and you love us and that you have sent your son Jesus for us, Father, that we might rest in him, that we might find the rest that our restless souls are longing for, that we might find the life that our restless, our, our struggling souls are weary for, and that we might find the water in you, Lord Christ, that our souls are thirsty for. So would you meet us in all of these ways in your joy and your abundance? We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to dive in. The way that I want to look at this passage is through the idea of shame. Shame is something, if you've paid attention or kind of like psychology or like to kind of take to know yourself more, if you've kind of done a little bit of counseling, shame is a huge idea in our culture. And I think one of the easiest ways to look at John 4 is to see that Jesus meets a woman at the well who was covered in shame. The shame both of what she has done in her own, it's apparent, in the conversation with Jesus she, that he brings out, she's had quite a few sort of um, sexually inappropriate relationships and is now currently in one. Uh, she's had some failed marriages. And I think we can say she's got shame. She's carrying shame both because of choices she's made, but I think the implication of the passage, she's also carrying that shame because of what these men, maybe the way that they treated her. That's why she's so shocked that a man like Jesus, a Jewish man who's a rabbi, would pay her any attention much less share a drink with her and enter into conversation with her. So what I want to do is kind of look at it through that lens, and I'm going to do it three ways. We're going to talk first about what shame is, second, what shame does, and then lastly, the undoing of shame. So bear with me, uh, tr- go with me as we look at this. So first, let's think about what shame is. Uh, again, Jesus meets this woman. She is covered in shame, which is why John adds that detail that she's at the well alone, basically at the sixth hour, which is the middle of the day. Why? In other words, she's at the well at the hottest hour of the day. Why? Why is she alone? Custom in her town would have been to go at the beginning of the day, in the cool of the day, with other women from town, with friends, with family, with people that know and love each other, and they go get well, get water from the well together. But she's there alone in the hottest part of the day. Why? Because of shame. Because she's no doubt been rejected through her five failed marriages, because of some of her choices and and things she's done, because of who she is, because no one wanted to associate with her, because of what's been done to her. She's kind of an outcast, as John makes clear in this passage. And at the root of it is shame. What is shame? Here's one definition that I like. Shame is the subjective experience of our objective guilt. Shame is the subjective experience experience of our objective guilt. And and when we say guilt, sometimes we don't work this out well in reform circles. When we say guilt, often we think about things that we have done. But part of the way that sin works and part of the way that brokenness in a broken world works is that there also are things that have been done to us. Some of us come into this room, no doubt, if you relate to me at all, with an abuse story. And that's part of my brokenness, right? Some of us come into this room and we've experienced both the sin of what we've done, but we also experience the sin of what's been done to us. One of my friends likes to say, the biblical kind of category for ourselves is that we're all villains and victims. We're villains because we have made, if we know our own hearts, some evil choices, some selfish and self-loving choices, but we're also uh, victims. We have, people have mistreated us. People have sinned against us, sometimes in really devastating ways. And for her, it seems like the one that Jesus sort of focuses on is her sin seems and her shame seems mostly driven by some sexual choices. 
that's clear she's been with a lot of men. Uh, she's lived maybe beneath her dignity, maybe even been addicted to both the men and the sex, it seems. And another way we could say it is her sin, like sin always does, has taken her to places that she probably, as a, as a good Samaritan woman, never thought that she would go. I think about, when I think about shame, I, I go back, and I think it's interesting that here at this well, in this biblical imagery, here is a man and a woman, and I think it points us back to the garden, and thinking about Adam and Eve in the garden, and thinking about the first experience of shame in this world. Here, Adam and Eve, they've been made to love each other, to love God, to walk with him in the cool of the day, and instead they choose the one tree that God says not to eat of. Everything up until that point had been, in in Genesis, good, 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 good. And now this is the first place where because sin enters into the world, shame enters into the world. And do you remember what they did? Instead of uh, taking their shame immediately to God in that moment where Genesis says they realized their nakedness and were afraid. And instead of immediately going to God and asking for his grace and his mercy, they do what we do. They hid and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And I think this is a a, a beautiful way to think about this woman. In in her own way, she's hiding. In her own way, she's no doubt covering herself because of the shame that she feels. Uh, I love the way that Brene Brown, if you're a fan of her at all, she has some of the best stuff on earth about shame. Here's what she says about it. She says, shame only needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Three things. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And y'all, the sad reality is sometimes as the church, sometimes as believers, we're the worst at this, right? Sometimes our shame is the worst place to take into a group like this because we do all three of those things so well. Secrecy. Do your friends really know you and what you're struggling with? Or do you kind of keep it to yourself because you're so afraid of what they're going to think of you? Silence. Do you confess your sins like James calls us to? Do do we confess our sins to one another? Or do we we again stay quiet because we're so afraid of their rejection or their judgment and judgment? We are always, when we're not resting in Jesus, it means we are constantly judging each other because we're trying to see if we measure up or see if that person measures up. And we're killing each other and only feeding the shame. I think back to a time in my life, this is an image for me of my, my story with shame. When I was about 15, uh, my dad left home when I was 12. I've told that story a lot of times, but because of that, I, I wasn't a Christian yet, grew up in a Christian home. But what was there for me was basically I, I figured out that lust was a good way to, to fix that pain. And that's, that struggle grew for me. And I remember being 15 and I was playing with friends. We were playing hacky sack which is like not a thing anymore, I don't think. Haggy sacks, that little thing you do with the, you know, the little, I could never do it well. Like I was always like, I got my Puma zone, but I'm terrible at this sport. So we're at this empty field, abandoned high school, playing hacky sack, and this guy pulls in a truck, and he's, he's starts, we know him from youth group, he's an older guy, he starts unloading bags into the dumpster, and we're like, we go over to him, because we kind of know him, we're like, hey man, what are you doing? And he does that thing where he's like, get away from here. He's like, you don't want to be here. And we're like, it makes us more curious. He's like, I'm unloading all these, basically, Playboys and all these kind of CD magazines into this dumpster. And I remember thinking, took, taking a middle note, I remember going home, and then I remember going back, because that sin had gotten its hooks in me, and I remember climbing into the dumpster to get one of those magazines. Talk about shame. When I look back at that time in my life, the shame that I felt was that I did that. Does that make sense? 
that I literally climbed into a dump. It's an image for me that's powerful, that I climbed into a dumpster partly because that's, who I, that's how I saw myself. I saw myself as all bad. I saw myself as only sin, only brokenness. And because of that, I was looking to anything that could silence that pain, that could meet me, that could heal me. And of course, it wasn't until I met Jesus that that story, that that struggle began to heal. And I could tell you a lot more about it. But so first, what shame is. But let's talk secondly, and we're kind of moving into what shame does. And I want you to ask the question, how did this woman see herself? If I just described how I saw myself at, at age 15 and still struggle with seeing myself at age 38, how did this woman see herself? What did she think of herself? Um, She obviously felt very alone. She obviously felt very isolated. Hopeless is probably a good word to describe her. Unworthy of love might be a great way to describe her. Never going to change might be a really good way to describe her. But I think we can just say that she is carrying a heavy load because shame is a heavy load. It weighs us down. And I want you to see a couple things about it. First, the reason it weighs us down is because shame has its own script. It creates an inner monologue in us. And here's how that monologue goes. Again, listen to Brene Brown, the way she talks about it. She says, shame drives two big tapes, two big loops in our minds and in our hearts. The first, never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame is it's not guilt. Shame, this is huge to get. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame says, I am bad. I am bad. Guilt says, I did something bad. And then she says, how many of you, if you did something that was hurtful to me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry I made a mistake? How many of you would be willing to say that? To say that? Guilt says, I'm sorry I made a mistake. But shame says, I'm sorry I am a mistake. I am not worthy of your trust or love or friendship. Uh, the latest, uh, the Rocky, the Michael B. Jordan uh, follow-up to Rocky Creed. I don't know if you saw Creed. I'm super pumped about Creed 2. But in the first Creed, there was a moment in that film where it's similar. It's playing off the Rocky films where there's a moment where they're at, uh, one of his friends asked Rocky, Rocky, why are you doing this? Why do you keep fighting these guys that you're probably going to lose to? Why do you keep killing yourself and training to fight these fights? And Rocky says, basically, to prove, to prove that I'm not a bum. And in a similar way in this movie, there's a a scene where one of Michael B. Jordan's friends uh, asks him, why are you doing this? Like, why why does this mean so much to you? And he says, to prove that I'm not a mistake. To prove that I'm not a mistake. I think a lot of us wake up in the morning and feel like a mistake. And here's how that works, I think, for us. When you wake up, I don't know if you're like me, but if if you are struggling with shame, what happens is you immediately begin to think about my friend calls it, you begin to should all over yourself, which I like a lot. And he means you, you should all over yourself in the sense of you think about the things that you shouldn't have done the day before or the night before. And you think of the things you immediately, or that you, and that you should have done the day before or the night before. And then you immediately wake up to face the day thinking about what you shouldn't be doing and what you should be doing. So for me, it's like I wake up and I'm already in, I'm already in should where it's like I should have woken up, I should have woken up earlier. I should have had my, my, my quiet time. I should have uh, engaged my kids more. Uh, I should have done my job better. Uh, I should have not said that to my wife. I should have said this to my wife or kids. I should not have done this. I should have done that. And here we go. That's the cycle. That's the guilt. That's the crushing load of shame. And that's the second thing I want you to see here is that shame doesn't just come with a script. It also comes with a filter. 
And here's the way, I love the way that this guy, Ed Welch, says this. Here's the filter of shame. The way I think about it is if, if you're a video game person, you know, sometimes you pick up, like my son's super into Fortnite, and you have all these different like packs. You can get health packs. And one of the things I think about is shame is sort of like a, almost like a video game where you pick up this filter, and as you carry this filter, you can't receive anything. And here's what Ed Welch says. He says, someone says to you, I love you. You hear nothing. Actually, you hear something. You hear a little voice in your brain that says, I'm worthless. You're only saying you love me because you think you have to. Somehow from the mouths of other people to your ear, all words of blessing and encouragement get tumbled upside down and backward and confirm your suspicions about yourself. You are an abject failure. This is what the filter says. Unloved, unlovable, and everyone knows it. And there are a hundred variations. You look nice today. Push it through the filter of shame and you get not true. I know I'm ugly. Or you seem to be feeling a little better today. This means, oh, you don't want to talk to me anymore. This is your brain and shame. That's how it works in us. And we need to say that we've all got different strategies for it. We've all got different strategies to deal with this. Some of us covered up with approval. That we genuinely think if we can get enough people to like us, then we'll feel loved. And if you've ever had the experience of winning approval, you know how scared you begin to get of losing it. Some of us seek to cover it, I think, with work. If we can just put the hours in, climb enough, leave enough of a legacy behind, do enough, accomplish enough, then maybe, just maybe, it will lighten the load of our shame. And the reality is that work just becomes a way to escape dealing with ourselves and our wounds. It becomes another way of hiding the very parts of ourselves that we hate and that we need the Lord to meet us on. I think others of us deal with our shame through addictions uh, of all shapes and sizes. Sexual addiction can seduce us with the false belief that giving in to our lust will somehow make us feel whole. Uh, substance abuse promises us that if we overdrink or overdrug or just take the right things to alter our moods, that we can somehow alter our moods enough to feel good enough that then we'll have what we need to face the difficulties of life. And both of those rob us of the thing that we need, which is intimacy. Being known being known at our worst, but being loved at God's best. We're craving that kind of intimacy. There's a scene that I love. I talk about this a lot, and it's a beast of a book called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, but there are some gems in there, just insight into us, into our hearts. And there's this one scene. He, this, was, this book was written, I think it was finished in 95 or 96. So this is well before the first iPhone. But man, he nailed, almost like a prophet, he nailed, he started pr- to predict some trends that actually happened. And one of the trends he predicted uh, is basically social media. In the book, these characters begin to develop this way of communicating where they can talk to each other and see each other on their phones, which is eerie the way that he does it. And what happens is the strange thing kind of happens where this strange self-awareness develops as the people go from listening to one another and being with one another to constantly looking at one another. And what happens is they, they begin to hate seeing their face. And this is truly like a FaceTime call. They begin to hate seeing their face on the screen. And so they begin uh, wearing these kinds of masks. And they get so addicted to these masks, they actually don't just wear the masks because we're on the phones, but they actually start wearing the masks out when they meet with each other. Um, and here's what he says about it. He says in, this, in a gradually unsubtilizing progression, within a couple more sales quarters, most consumers were now using masks so undeniably better looking on video phones than their real faces were in person, transmitting to one another such horrendously skewed and enhanced masked images of themselves that enormous psychological stress began to result. 
large numbers suddenly reluctant to leave home and interface personally with people who they feared would see them in person and and suffer. And they would suffer the same illusion, the same illusion-shattering aesthetic disappointment that women who always wear makeup give people the first time they ever see them without makeup. And I think he's getting at something, the way that we do this. This is part of the way that we hide. I mean, I can be honest with you. Like, I, I totally, it is so hard to reveal your real self online, right? Like, this is part of why Twitter became such a thing for me, is it became a way that I could win approval without having to share the parts of myself that I hate. Or even trying to share the parts of myself that I hate in a funny way to gain approval. But what it, what it, what it can do to us is rob us of real intimacy and connection. The one thing that can take shame away is being known and loved. The one thing that can begin to take shame away is for someone to see us. To see us as we are, not as we're pretending to be, and still choose us. Still want to to be friends with us. Still want to be in relationship with us. And I think what Jesus, what John is for is, is saying to us is she didn't so much have a sex problem. She didn't so much have a marriage problem. She didn't so much even have a relationship problem. She had all those things, but at her core, she had a shame problem because she was terrified of being seen as she was and then loved. And what I want you to see is that Jesus sees her. Jesus sees her. And that's the third thing I want you to see is that as he sees her, he he meets her where she is, not where she's been pretending to be or not where she's been hiding. And this is the third thing I want you to see is the undoing of shame. And I think thinking about it this way, again, put yourself kind of in her friend circle or former friend circle. As she is, where she is with the mistakes and the shame she's carrying, who would would be proud to know this woman? Who who would ever want to to love and enter into a relationship with this woman? And the thing that John 4 is screaming is, Jesus. Jesus wants to know her. Jesus wants to love her. And this is what I think begins to undo her. She gets into that theological argument, which I think is another way of hiding. That's the thing that we should side note. There's a wonderful way to hide in our circles. And it's called being, being profound in theology. Being able to quote effortlessly the books you've been reading. Y'all, there's a way to do that where you're just hiding. You're just avoiding your problems. You're, you're still not sharing the things that you really struggle with. But she's undone by his kindness to her. He's the first Jew to ever share a drink with her because of the the animosity between them. She's the first rabbi, no doubt, to be interested in her story. And I think even bigger than that, he's the first man who didn't aim to use her. He aimed to, to give himself for her, to really love her, to see her, and to love her selflessly. And this is the love of Jesus. Like, this is the good news for you and me tonight. It's the kind of movement he has for this woman is the kind of movement he still has for us. To know us at our worst, to see us truly, and choose us, and love us. And even, Scripture says, delight in us, to call us his joy. His love never, it always meets us where we are, not where we've been pretending to be. But we know his love, as it's going to happen with this woman, it doesn't leave us where we are. When you've met Jesus and he's begun to show you his grace and his love, it begins to change you from the inside out. And I think the thing to to, to kind of remember is in John 4, he meets this woman. He sits down with her. He shares a drink with her from the same cup, which he's blown away by. He shows her astounding kindness. But he's doing this as he's making his way to the cross, where he's going to once and for all objectively deal 
with her guilt and shame and sin. And I love to think about as he does that, Jesus, think with me for a second about why Jesus meets us so kindly in our shame. It's because he himself is no stranger to shame. Think about it with me for a second. As he went to the cross, he was shamed by his disciples. His disciples were ashamed of him. That's why they left him and they fled him, right? Uh, He was shamed by the religious leaders who not only covered him with their injustice, but they literally covered him with their spit. If you remember the the trial of Jesus, they literally spit on him. He was shamed by the Roman soldiers who stripped him. And as they stripped him, they did things to him. They abused him. He was also shamed by those who passed by him on the road as they shouted insults at him as he hung on the cross. You know, the cross itself is the, the ultimate symbol of shame. It's a gruesome death reserved for the worst kind of people, the worst kind of men. And I want you to see that at the cross, Jesus not only experienced that kind of shame, but he experienced the deepest kind of shame, which is the shame of being rejected by God the Father as unclean. And this was always the plan, but it still broke the Father's heart, even as it pleased the Lord to crush him and put him to grief, Isaiah 53 says. This is why the author of Hebrews, I love this verse, I say it a lot here. This is why the author of Hebrews wrote about Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. In what sense did Jesus despise its shame? I think a better way to say it is Jesus endured shame that he might take away our shame. That Jesus endured the shame of our sins that we might no longer be condemned. That's why when we sing, I love to sing Man of Sorrows. That's been a hymn that's been sweet to me this last month. Then we sing that line that I love. Uh, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Maybe you feel like your shame is too much for Jesus. Like, maybe you're here tonight and you think, you don't know, Sammy, this is nice, it sounds nice, but you don't know me. You don't know the things I've done. I can't just grab coffee at iMac and just lightly share the things that I've done. Or, or maybe you're thinking, like, how could Jesus love someone like me? Doesn't he, isn't he too pure to handle my mess? And I want you to know, No. The Jesus we meet in John 4 came not just to meet you in your shame, but to take it away. I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says, in your shame, maybe you're asking, how could someone like you come to Jesus? And here's what he says. Because he has come to your shame. He has come to your shame to bring you to his joy. He has come to your shame to bring you to his joy, which is why I love John 4 at the end. We didn't read it. The way that the story goes, she has this encounter with Jesus. And there's this beautiful thing that happens. A revival literally breaks out in Samaria. The last place that anyone thought a revival would break out. Why? Because she goes back, John 4, the end of it, we didn't get to it. She goes back to her town and she says this. Come meet a man who told me all I ever did. Do you know what she's saying? Come meet a man who knows me. He knows my sin. He knows my shame. And he loves me. And he wants me. And he's glad to make me his. Let's pray together.
Lord, I pray that that would become a reality for our hearts. For those of us who, especially tonight, feel like we're covered in shame, would you meet us in this place? Would you remind us of what you are like? Lord, some of us, we have an impression of you that is just not, it's just wrong. And would you write it by your word and show us your character that you are the only God we have ever heard of who loves sinners like us. That you are a God who comes into our lives where we are, whether we are admitting it or not, to bring your joy, to bring your grace, to bring your forgiveness. And that you are the one who endured shame for us that we might know your joy. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, bring that, bring the gospel home to our hearts tonight. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Hey, one thing we forgot to say, uh, last week we are in a residential area, and I guess there was um, a noise complaint from someone, so no idea if that was us or not us, but just as we leave, just keep that in mind, Um, the complaint said that uh, car horns were honked or something, so no big deal, just wanted to say it, I told the church I'd say it, because we don't want to get kicked out of this space, so just keep it in mind, have a good time, but also be mindful, thanks.